The Real Investment Show. The big story today is inflation. That's going to be the big, kind of the big headline here. Uh, over the last few weeks, of course, stagflation, this term stagflation, has been rising in terms of search, uh, you know, really, really everywhere you look. I mean, if you go online, you see lots of articles about stagflation and talking about, you know, going back to the 70s, and we're going to see that again. Look, there are some certainly some concerns here about rising inflation. Used car prices are back on the rise again. Yeah, after a brief respite, you know, we saw used car prices maybe coming down a little bit, maybe getting a little bit past that. Not so the case. Uh, used car prices back off to the races here. This is going to feed into the inflationary impact in the economy. Of course, higher gas prices, higher oil prices, oil prices above $80 a barrel. That's going to feed into the inflationary equation. Now, yes, we strip out this uh, food and energy uh, prices from inflation calculation that we that we look at. And so CPI never really is quite what the average household uh, uses. But what happens with oil prices is also important because it feeds into every other aspect of the economy, no matter whether you're transporting something, using something, consuming it, the package that it comes in, oil is affecting all of that. So the higher oil prices go, the higher the inflationary pressures for companies are that then they have to try to pass on to consumers. And that shows up in the household and, of course, with incomes, real incomes. Now, these are incomes after inflation. So real incomes are flat here for the last several quarters. They have not been rising, which means that what's happening is that nominal income has been going up. And nominal income has been rising X transfer payments from the government, right? So let's strip out all the stuff that the government gave you last year. Look at what you're just actually earning. That nominal income has been coming up here a bit. And we are seeing wages increase, but they're not increasing as fast as inflation. And the problem with that is the very definition of what is stagflation. Stagflation is when you have inflation that detracts from economic growth. In other words, you have slow economic growth and very rapid inflation. Here's the thing about inflation in the 70s. Now, we go back to the 70s and we talk about, oh, it was horrible, right? We had this massive run of inflation. It really wasn't that bad because at the same time that you had rising inflation, yes, you had rising interest rates. Interest rates were 10, 11, 12, 13%. However, earnings growth and wages were growing rapidly at that point. Economic growth was running at 8 and 9%. Wage growth was growing in concert with the inflationary pressure. So yes, inflation and interest rates were going up, but it was livable because you had rising wages to pace that inflation. The problem today is that we have inflation and we don't have wage growth keeping up with those inflationary pressures. So what this translates into is the average household has got to make decisions. They have income coming in and they have to pay bills, right? They've got to pay their credit card debt, got to pay their mortgage debt, got to pay the auto debt, got to pay for school, got to pay for uh, homeowners insurance. We've got to pay for homeowner association dues. We've got to pay for the mortgage. We've got to pay for all this stuff, right? uh, Cell phone bills for every member of the family and the dog. Everybody's got a cell phone bill now, so everybody's got to get paid. So we've got to pay all those bills and then we've got to figure out how to eat, and the cost of those of food is going up. If you've been you know, out to eat lately, that cost is getting extremely expensive to go out to eat. Buying food at the grocery store, you're either coming home with less groceries 
or you're just paying a lot more for the same amount of groceries that you were getting before. So one of the two things are happening, but that's translating back into the household. Now, this all leads to slower consumption. And as consumption declines, you're going to get slower rates of economic growth. And not surprisingly, we're seeing this, this kind of feedback loop already occurring here. The Atlanta Fed has their GDP estimate for the third quarter. Now, we're about to report the third quarter GDP growth. Um, and that's going to be about 1.3%. That's down from 6.5% at the end of the second quarter, which is down from 13.5% at the end of the first quarter. So again, we've got very rapidly deteriorating economic growth. Now, lots of economists are expecting a big rebound, a big resurgence in economic growth in the fourth quarter and into next year, be growing at 4 or 5%. The problem is, is there's no liquidity to help support that growth. If inflationary pressures remain high, this is problematic on a couple of fronts, and one of those is the fact that the Fed will have to not only taper, but they're going to have to taper faster than they anticipated, and they're going to have to start hiking rates potentially to offset that spike in inflation, particularly if it becomes more pervasive, as it looks like. Yesterday, um, Rafael Bostic, who is the Atlanta Fed president, came out and said, look, we thought this inflation was transient. It doesn't look like that's going to be the case. So we're starting to see this push of inflation in the economy that's not going away fairly quickly. Oil prices aren't retreating. We're not seeing that pullback. We're not seeing the supply chain disruptions get fixed. They should have been fixed by now. We should be uh, getting things moving through the economy, but we can't. Um, we've talked about the truckers in Texas getting paid $14,000 a week to drive a truck because you just can't find trucks at this point. You've got Dozens upon dozens of ships sitting off the port coast in, in both the, the Gulf of Mexico as well as off the port of Los Angeles, they can't dock because they can't get unloaded. So this is all leading to these supply chain uh, problems, these delivery time problems. And what that leads to, of course, is supply and demand. What drives inflation? It's when you have more demand than you've got ability of supply to meet. Now, eventually that will rectify itself. At some point, supply will come back online, and when supply comes back online, then demand will start to fade as demand gets fed, and then you're going to wind up with more deflationary pressures at that point. But right now, that inflation and quote-unquote stagflation is problematic. Now, today, we're going to be looking at CPI for the month of September, right? So we're going to get that out today. That's going to be feeding right into this Fed decision about them having to taper. If it comes in a lot hotter than expected, which is what is expected right now, um, if we do see a very strong pace of inflation, that's going to start really pushing the Fed to start their tapering and potentially be a bit more aggressive about it as soon as November. So that'll be the one thing we're really watching this morning at 7.30 when that, when that number gets released. And that's going to probably have a pretty good bearing on what happens in the markets today. We also kick off earnings. We come back with Danny Ratliff here in just a second. A lot of stories to get into, but we'll talk a little bit about earnings season getting underway. The big banks coming out first, of course. They kind of lead the charge on earnings. Uh, we'll talk about expectations for earnings this quarter and the risk of disappointment. Don't go away. As we move into earnings season, which actually starts today, BlackRock was out uh, announcing earnings this morning. Uh, we're going to see a lot of the major banks reporting here over the next uh, few days in particular. And then we'll then over the next really two weeks uh, heading, you know, kind of wrapping up the month. Uh, we're going to see a bulk of the S&P 500 companies reporting. So there's going to be a lot of this. Now, what's the things to be looking for here, of course, is that 
estimates for earnings are very high. They have started to come down, and this is the annual. Let's you know, this is the annual game of earnings that we play. It's called beat the Wall Street Wall Street estimate game, and this is where Wall Street starts lowering their estimates so that companies can beat over them. So, um, we're seeing those estimates starting to ratchet down here a little bit, and there's going to be more of that to come. Now, the thing to watch here, of course, you know, we are going to see a, a large number of beats as usual. Um, we all almost always see, no matter how bad it is. Um, in the economy or in the markets or whatever it is, we always have 75, 85% of beats, you know, companies beating earnings. And this, this happens every quarter. This is because of, of how Wall Street lowers estimates to make sure that happens. Um, so we're going to see that again. Um, but we're coming off a record level of beats that we saw in the last quarter. And that was because of year-over-year comparisons and a lot of this. So we're going to see a lower rate of companies beating earnings. And the thing to really watch for here over the course of the next few weeks in particular is really two things. One is what are margins looking like? Are margins, are, are companies able to maintain their profit margins? Also keep a look at sales. And because sales is what happens at the top line of the, uh, of the income statement, earnings is what happens at the bottom after we do share buybacks, which are at a record right now, um, a lot of accounting gimmicks, et cetera. So watch what sales are doing. Are they actually growing sales at the top line? That's going to be the question. And then at the bottom line is really looking at gross margins. Are they able to pass on higher cost to consumers? And companies that are having a problem passing that on, you may want to be a little bit more cautious of because going into the fourth quarter of this year and into next year, as the economy continues to slow, earnings are going to start to compress rather sharply and companies are still extremely overvalued here. So watch for margins, watch for sales in particular at the top line, and then also pay attention to what they're saying about their forward guidance. What are they, what are they doing uh, how are they doing handling inflation? How are they doing handling this current environment that we're in? And because that's going to play off a lot about what they expect earnings to be in the next quarter. So this is going to be kind of one of those pivotal periods for earnings and for the, the market itself, because we're coming off of very easy year-over-year comparisons. Remember, this time, you know, uh, over the last couple of quarters, we were in the depths of a recession. So year-over-year comparisons were very easy. Now those year-over-year comparisons are become much tougher, um, particularly as we move into the, into next year. Danny, any comments about that? Well, I, I think it's interesting. You watch forward guidance, and and what does that do to the Fed, especially if they come out and say, "Hey, guys, things, you know, we may have some trouble here in the future." Obviously, supply chain disruptions are playing a big, uh, they're a major factor at the moment, but. How how many of these CEOs do you know that come out and say, guys, this doesn't look so hot. I don't think we're going to do too well. It doesn't happen like it used to because right. they're all paid and they all profit when their stock does well. And they're not going to tell people they're having trouble. And so I always have a hard time with the whole, um, you know, the headlines that, oh, forward guidance is going to be weak. You know, we're, we are hearing, you know, IMF came out. They, they you know, they decreased what their thoughts were for mm-hmm. or their expectations for growth next year. We're hearing more and more of that. But is that just setting the Fed up for something different as well? I mean, does the Fed take this information and they say, well, okay, maybe we, we don't do things as quickly. You know, you hear, it was a Bullard came out yesterday and said, we're going to have to taper much quicker now because we may be, we may have to raise interest rates a lot sooner. Right. What well, are your thoughts on that? Well, no, that's, you know, this is, uh, I'm, I'm kind of working on an article on that right now, but you know, the one thing is, is that yes, the IMF cut their earnings, expect their uh, economic growth expectations for next year. 
uh, Goldman Sachs did as well. But, you know, they are lowering their estimates from exceptionally high levels to not quite as exceptionally as high levels. <laughs> so, you know, they're still expecting 5 and 6% rates of economic growth next year, which is is more than double what the economy can actually generate. And that's, and, and, and particularly in light of the fact that we don't have a lot of fiscal liquidity coming in, there's still this, this kind of organic hope that, you know, the recovery boom that we saw starting in 2020 is somehow going to magically just continue to run at these elevated levels in the economy, you know, just forever. And all that was driven, and everybody seems to forget that that was all driven by $5 trillion worth of direct injections into the economy. That's gone now. So now everything's going to return back to a normality of what the economy can actually drive itself on based on consumption, because the economy is 70% consumption. People are going back to having to live on what they're earning. And the problem now is that inflation is going to impact that ability to drive economic growth because people only have so much money to spend and it's costing them more to buy the same amount of stuff. And uh, which means at some point they've got to start contracting what they're spending. Correct. Now, can we still look towards financials to be kind of the bellwether to give us an indication of what the remaining you know sectors are going to look like? I mean, historically, we've been able to look towards those guys and say, okay, if they report good earnings, typically everybody else will because they're kind of a, everything funnels through the banks at some point, right? right? Um, you know, JP Morgan just had a big beat. Profit rose 24%. Um, we do own JP Morgan within the portfolio, full disclosure. But what, you know, a lot of that was just moving bank reserves for loan losses. <laughs> I know, and that's, and that's the real thing. And again, this is what I was saying is you've really got to dig down into these numbers and look past the accounting gimmicks that create these beats. One, we've had a record number of stock buybacks over the last quarter. So that's been driving earnings per share up because there's less shares outstanding. But that doesn't create just because I spend five billion dollars on share buybacks. That doesn't mean I created revenue for the company. It just means I have a different accounting measure for earnings per share. So this is why we want to look at sales. What happened with their net interest margins? Are those going up or going down? They're going down. Um, or, you know, are they? And which is a big driver of their revenue. Um, you know, what's happening with their actual sales? Are those sales actually increasing at a, at a pace to sustain their earnings growth that, they, that they're currently projecting? And a lot of those questions, when you, re, and when you really start to dig down into it, yeah, the way they're beating earnings, and this is the problem with the whole earnings game, is that, oh, they beat earnings by a penny. Who cares? It's a penny, right? I mean, it's, it's such a marginal amount. It, does it really justify a, you know, one or $2 billion change in market capitalization? No, it doesn't. But this is just the, the casino game that we now play. If we actually look at the quality of their earnings, it's a much different story. And right now, uh, Larry Fink from BlackRock is on um, CNBC is a good example talking about his whole ESG, you know, belief and about his fight against climate change. No, the reason he's promoting ESG is because he charges you twice as much for his ESG funds as he does for his regular funds. So, yeah, promote ESG because it helps their earnings. <laughs> so, you know, we've gone through this whole story before, but these are the games that that are played on Wall Street. And as investors, we need to be able to sort those out and, and really understand what we're buying because, yeah, in the short term, it may not, it really doesn't matter. Earnings don't matter in the short term. Valuations don't matter. Fundamentals don't matter in the very short term. So if you're just trading stocks, just buy stocks because the news is what's driving it from one day to the next. 
But if you're a long-term investor looking to own something long-term, earnings and fundamentals do matter, and they matter a lot, and it's worth understanding where those earnings are actually coming from. So oh, those, those are all really good points. I think that you know it's tough for the average investor to, to take into account, especially when you hear so much information coming out. You know, and it's a lot of it's conflicting. So what's the easiest way for somebody to do their homework? There's no easy way to home, do homework. I mean, <laughs> it's like my son comes to me the other day and says, "Dad, I got a lot of homework to do." I'm like, "Well, good, go do it. <laughs> I'll go see you in four yeah. or five hours." There's there's no easy way to do homework. I mean, you talk to any great investor in history, they spend hours, you know, digging over 10K, 10Q reports, doing the the fundamental research, doing the technical research. I mean, this is all we do every day all day long. I mean, you know, all the articles and blogs that we write and newsletters that we write is us doing research on the markets, on stocks, on companies and and on outlooks. And that's how we derive our ultimate, our, ultimately our portfolio strategy. But this is an, a 12, 14 hour a day game that we play every single day of the week. So, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, you see people talking about, oh, you can trade stocks for 15 minutes a day. Yeah, you can, as long as you're trading stocks and as long as you're getting the, the trend right. But generally those people don't last very long in markets which really brings up a kind of a good story you've got this morning talking about super savers and i had to chuckle when i read it because brett Ahrens, who i admire very much he's a great writer um wrote this story about super savers and how they and how they've done this ability to save for retirement and when you start looking at the math behind their numbers um they're going to be very disappointed when they actually get into retirement. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's going to be one of the stories we come back to after the break, and we'll talk about it. So uh, a couple of things here. Uh, we've got this weekend. Uh, don't forget, go by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com this weekend. Danny Ratliff and Richard Russell will be live in Austin. Uh, we're shipping them up and out on Friday, uh, sending them up to Austin to do a live event. It's the Right Lane Retirement Workshop. It's our most popular um, class that we do. It covers everything about retirement how much you need to have, how to invest, how much Social Security, when to take it, how much Social Security income can you expect? Um, you know, what what can you what what could you do to mess that all up? You know, how much income can you have without messing up Social Security? Social Security maximization. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. The answer everything. It's a really great in-depth class. And, and we send no products with them to sell. So they are simply there to give you information. Go by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on the event link. And we've got a few chairs left, right, Danny? Well, not many. It's just filled up pretty quick. So we're, we're happy with the turnout. So please go sign up, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'd love to have you guys out. Real informal setting. Uh, we like to leave it open for questions. We hang around. Um, you know, we're going to... There's not a question you can't ask. There you go. All right. Be right back after the break. More with Danny Ratliff. Don't go away. So let's talk a little bit about Super Savers. It's an interesting story that was in Market Watch by Brett Ahrens, who's a writer. I really always enjoy reading uh, Brett's stuff. He's a very smart guy. Talks about a new principal survey that's out, um, stating some of the obvious things here that we, we already know. Of course, uh, among those who have fully retired, half may be living on less than $22,000 a year. And, you know, we've talked about numerous surveys that have been out. 80% of Americans have less than $500 in emergency cash. They have to, they go into debt every month. And of course, all we have to do is look at these statistics between 
what happens in terms of the cost of living versus incomes and how much invest uh, individuals have to go into debt every year just to maintain their standard of living. And this is why we have record credit card debt. So, you know, these statistics are always interesting because here, here's the statement. Nearly half of all workers say they worry they haven't saved enough for retirement, including alarmingly even 40% of baby boomers. And even though they are already aged 57 or older. So it's worth looking closely at those among us who may be doing things right. A new survey called Super Savers, conducted by a principal, does that. They surveyed 1,500 people. What did they find out? So Super Savers are defined as people that save roughly 90% of their maximum in their retirement plan. So um, if you have a 401k plan, Danny, what's the current maximum limitation for somebody under the age of 50 um, to save in their 401k plan. Yes, yeah, so you can do 19.5 with a $6,500 catch up if you're over 50 to get you that 26,000. So, you know, there's there's quite a bit of room for a lot of people to save, but like you mentioned, they they quantify this as somebody who's saving, you know, up to 90% of that. Of that. Right. So, yeah. so it's just let's just make numbers round easy, right? So, uh $20,000 a year in my 401k plan. I know that's 195, but let's just call it 20. I save 90% of that's $18,000. Okay. So, I'm going to save 18,000 a year. Now, if I do math on this, 18,000 a year times 10 years is $180,000. Uh by 30 years, we're now at Four hundred and five hundred and twenty thousand dollars. So I've got roughly five hundred twenty thousand dollars saved up. Now the problem with this is that then we apply these ideas that we're going to. I saw a really great article out yesterday saying that investors should just save money because they should expect an eleven percent rate of return every year because that's what we've gotten over the last five years. And. Oh, man. <laughs> You know, so we tend to extrapolate these these very short term gains out in the markets, and they say, well, if we just if we just save you know ten dollars a month or whatever it is, and we get you know fifteen percent a year on returns, you know we're going to be millionaires. So a couple of things to get into here that, that are important about this, and and this is really Danny's area of expertise. So I'm going to throw some of the stuff back at him, but and he, and he does he you know he meets with so many people every day talking about retirement and planning for it. And, and and so he can talk about real numbers versus, you know, kind of these, these media driven numbers. First of all, a million dollars ain't what it used to be, <laughs> you know, back in the, and, and I'm not talking about a million dollars ain't what it used to be in terms of what you can generate. Right. So back in the 1980s, I could take a million dollars, invest it in us treasuries and make $120,000 a year to live on. So, I'm good. If I got a million dollars at 100 and I'm making $120,000 a year to live on, that's great. Problem was the cost of living in 1980 was about $25,000 a year for a family of four. Today, it's $60,000 a year. And a million dollars in a U.S. Treasury will generate about $14,000 a year to live on. So now I'm forced to put it all into equities to try to make up the difference, which is a, a risky investment. But the biggest, the, the biggest problem with all of this is that we're still using flawed, now in my opinion, this is my opinion only, okay? I'm not necessarily saying this is Danny's opinion. This is my opinion. But we use these kind of wonky rule of thumbs that really don't apply anymore. 15 times your salary and savings, you'll be fine for retirement. If you make, make $100,000 a year, 15 times your salary, you got $1.5 in the bank, again, 
that's not as much money as you think it is when you're trying to withdraw money out to live on and to maintain your standard of living. Because again, at, at you know, people that have a $100,000 a year lifestyle versus people that have a $50,000 a year lifestyle, they'll tell you they don't have any money either. And we don't see, and, and when we look at across the measures of statistics, people that have $100,000 a year in income aren't saving any money any more than people with a $50,000 income aren't saving any money. So, you know, it, it's important that it's not just what you save, it's also saving, but also managing the actual underlying lifestyle that you are living to make sure that you can afford to live that way in retirement. Danny, your comments on this? Well, I think, you know, one of the, the main stats that I took from this was among all of those who are fully retired, half may be living on less than 22000 a year, mm -hmm. which I know you brought up. But think about that. And, and you extrapolated the numbers from a million dollars in a treasury getting fourteen, you know, $14,000 or 15, maybe 16 right now, depending on the yeah. day. Right. Um, but these people are also taking Social Security. They're getting other funds. The problem has been all along the way that that people have a very difficult time saving. And we have a very difficult time living beneath our means. And look, we can go on for days and days. We have a very, there's a big lack in education surrounding this in America. Um, that's why we do these right lane classes and really to bring it all down and break it down for you and say, hey, here's what's important. Sometimes it's too late, but let's go even further, Lance. We know last year, Vanguard Fidelity was saying the average retirement account was about 193, give or take. Right. But what was the median? The median was like 60, yeah. 70. I mean, how are you going to live off of that? Right. And then we start looking at these numbers, especially when we get a period of, of good returns together and people say, well, look, you can do 11% every year. Well, you could, but are you invested strictly in the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or whatever their index they're using? Most people aren't. And if you are, could you take the drawdown that typically occurs after a string of very good years and still make your distributions in retirement? This is where many people fail to account for, and especially these articles typically fail to mention yeah. because Nobody ever talks about what happens when the, when the funds deteriorate and you're still taking distributions. How does that math of loss impact you and your family? And do you actually ever get back to even? Questions, likely not. And so what we try to do within these financial plans is really put this into a realistic perspective and say, okay, here's how you should put your money in different places. Here's why we would have cash at different times. So you don't have to write something all the way down. And let's use some returns that may be a little bit more realistic. And a lot of times we use returns that we we believe and we've seen that we're going to outperform. But what happens if we don't? What happens if we get in that long period of time where we do see higher inflation and lower uh, lower wage growth? Right. Well, and, you know, and there's, there's, yeah. And, and, and here's what's interesting is, is right. So, you know, this is 2020. So let's say that somebody is 55 years old today or, or say 65. Right. Wait a so second. It's 2021. Lance. I know. Yeah. Well, I'm. We're in the 2020s, okay? So we're about to go back. We're about to go back in the way back machine, right? All right, so, all right. So here it is. It's the 2020s, and I'm 65 years old. I'm ready to retire, right? So let's go backwards in time here just a minute. So at the 2010s, I was 55. At the 2000s, at the turn of the century, I was 45. You know, in 1990, I'm 35. And and most people, and the reason I'm, I'm saying this is, is that when you really look at most people, they don't really have the ability to start saving money for their retirement really until they start getting into their 30s, right? So 30, 35, you've kind of gotten out of school now. You've got a job. You're probably getting married, settled down, trying to buy a house. But you can maybe save a little bit of money. Then you start having kids, got to pay for college. But there's all these drags on your income that really kind of come along and people really don't get serious about saving for retirement till they're in their forties. But 
let's just, <coughs> excuse me, let's just start at 35. It's 1990. And I'm 35 years old and I'm going to start saving money. I'm going I'm to follow all the rules of thumb. And we're going to invest in the S&P index. We're going to buy and hold. We're going to dollar cost average when we do this. Now, the reason I say this is because you had the, the a ripping bull market in the 1990s. Then you had a little bear market there in 2001 and two. Then you had another bull market again in 2003 through 2008. And you had this little drawdown thing in 2008. No big deal. And then you had the biggest bull market ever in history up to this point. So you've had three bull markets and two bear markets over the last 40 years. And yet with that and, and all this idea and all this commentary that we get from people about just buying and investing and holding, and you're going to be fine. And you're gonna make all this money in the markets. Why is it, if that is the case, why is it that 80% of Americans don't have any savings and you know, 80% of Americans are dependent upon some form of, of government benefit in retirement after three major bull markets in, in the U.S. history occurring just over the course of the last 30 years. See, something doesn't quite fundamentally work out with the math because bear markets matter, and particularly they matter a lot when you're spending years just getting back to even. And to your point, if I'm drawing money out of my, income, uh, out of my investments during a, down, a downturn, it only exacerbates that downturn any, any, even more. So all these theories that we hear about in the financial media don't hold water when compared with what's really happened in history over the last 30, 40 years. Well, and that's exactly right. As things change, we need to evolve these principles that we're living by as well. And, you know, we're still hearing the same modern portfolio theory, 4% rule of thumb. You know, now we're starting to get the academics and in, in the financial world are coming out and saying, well, maybe we need to adjust some of these numbers. <laughs> well, yeah, we're a little late here, guys. I mean, we've been in this ultra low interest rate environment for a very long period of time. And we also probably need to be more nimble with how we're taking distributions and looking at that annually and saying, OK, you know, how did the portfolio do? Did you spend too much? Uh, did the portfolio not make enough? You know, do we still get the, the income that we once did from these portfolios? Yeah. And the answer is likely not. Man, maybe we need to start telling people they need to avoid bear markets, too, because it has a real, real impact on their outcomes. <laughs> oh, come on, Lance. You know those don't happen. <laughs> All right. Be right back after the break with Danny Ratliff. Uh, a couple other stories to get into this morning. Um, but also, as we talk about workers returning back from the pandemic and, and getting back to work, what does that potentially mean for employers? Don't go away. So let me tell you how to triple your income so you can effectively save for retirement. So this is how you're going to triple your income. I just figured this out a few minutes ago. So we're talking about all these people returning back to work. But right now, a lot of people really are looking for jobs where they can work from home, right? So this is now if you can afford to live on one income, I'm going to tell you how to triple your income and then you can save two incomes and you'll have plenty of money saved up for retirement. Work from home, apply for the same job three times, and then you only have to do one job, <laughs> but you get paid three times. <laughs> yeah, just go to three different, every, you know, most companies have the same position, right? So you just apply for the same job at three different companies. You're working from home, doing the same job. Who knows, right? What does that person's LinkedIn profile look like, Lance? <laughs> And, and can you count each job as a year of expertise? Yeah, that's the other thing. Yes, this is this is correct. So just say, actually, there's a big survey out this morning uh, talking about this very thing is that 
more and more people are wanting to work from home because they can work multiple jobs. And I'm sitting there going, this is genius, right? Who, who would have thought that people would have figured that out, that they could be working multiple jobs and getting paid for them all working at home, right? Because, you know, normally if you're going to an office to work and you're being paid full time to work for a full time job, you're expected to do that job full time. But they were going, hmm, you know, I actually have a lot of spare time. <laughs> you know, working at home, I have a lot of spare time on my full time job. I'll take advantage of it. So, Anyway, but speaking of that, uh, headline out this morning uh, talking about return of office workers reaches pandemic high as employee or employees trickle back in. Um, so that's kind of interesting because, you know, we are starting to see people actually go back to work in offices and trying to figure out how to, you know, companies are trying to figure out how to, to kind of navigate this, um, you know, kind of this environment that we're in now moving forward, getting people back to work, uh, getting offices back up and running. People tend to be more productive at the office anyway. So it's kind of a kind of an interesting shift. It's not going smoothly between, you know, vaccine mandates and companies trying to navigate that whole thing. Um, now you've got states and the federal government arguing over the ability to do mandates. And so this is, you know, causing some companies to have to kind of slow their roll a bit on trying to bring people back to the office. But, you know, there is a potential you know, benefit to this because one of the areas of the financial markets that are concerning is, of course, all this commercial real estate that is not getting utilized at this point because people are working remotely. Um, we built a lot of commercial real estate over the last several years as the economy was booming. Now, all of a sudden, there's a lot of vacant real estate. So there's some consequences of not getting people back to work. And so I think a lot of companies that are tied to real estate that have a lot of office space, you know, that they own, um, want to get people back in to start using it. We're seeing a lot of changes as well, where developers <clears throat> are coming back out and they're actually changing some of these spaces into something similar to WeWork or mm -hmm. uh, Regents because they can't find actual companies to come fill those spots. And so they say, well, you know what? Look at this model. It's worked. And maybe some people do actually want to get out of the house and and go go somewhere, right? And so we are seeing some of that. I, I can relate to that. I think a lot of people can with kids and dogs and all that fun stuff, um, ready to get back into the office. But you also have a big portion that the workforce has changed drastically. And so things that don't show up in the labor force participation rates are, what about all those people that retired early? What does that actually look like when everybody comes back? Will we be back to pre-pandemic levels? I think I, think I doubt that. Um, you know, and, and so like you mentioned, what do you do with all this space that's out there? And what do these companies do when they figure, hey, we can have this hybrid model and it can work? Well, you know, this is kind of, you know, the kind of the interesting stories is that people are figuring out they can work from home and they can be productive and they can do these things. You know, there's, you know, but again, it's, you know, I was talking to one of our employees. Um, she's come back to the office. She's working now. And, and I was talking to her the other day and she's and I'm like, well, you know, didn't you like working at home? She goes, I was going stir crazy being at home all the time. <laughs> I needed to get out um, of the house and come back to work. You know, I've been lucky because. During this entire shutdown, we've been coming into the studio every day to do the radio show and to do our video work and the other things that we do. So I've been lucky because I've, you know, I can work both play. I can work at home, but I can, and I get to come here, but I couldn't stand, I can't stand being locked up in my house all day long, every day of the week. It's just, I, I'm, I did that for about Thanks, three years. Well, I, I did that for about three years when I was working overseas. 
And, you know, I was here and, and having to work literally almost 24 hours a day because of the time difference between what I was doing here and, and my clients that were overseas. And, you know, after a while, you just realize you haven't taken a shower in a week and there's pizza boxes stacked up everywhere. <laughs> you know, it's just, you, you know, you just kind of become this hermit and it's not, it's not really very healthy. Um, and eventually you've got to get back out into the world and do things, you know, dress for work, those type of things. And, and it does it does make you more productive. I, I kind of made a joke on Twitter the other day. I said, the best thing about working at home is you only have to get half dressed every day. Right, Danny? <laughs> Hold on now, Lance. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, but yeah, you know what? Go ahead. I, I was never brave enough to do that because I knew, I knew I'd stand up or something, you know, in your underwear <laughs> or shorts on just wouldn't look good. So yeah, I, ha I had to start feeling like a normal person again, starting putting, putting pants on. Yeah. Well, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see, um, you know, how this works. Again, companies are trying to make this transition to get people back to work now. And, and again, there's there's a lot of roadblocks uh, at this point. Right. We have the you know, look at the fight that's going on right now with Southwest Airlines. I think that's a great example of this, you know, potential for right now. Um, they're kind of in a really tough spot. So their hubs in Dallas. Uh, so Southwest Airlines hubs in Dallas. Now they had to cancel thousands of flights and of course they're saying oh well it was technical glitches it was this it was that the other thing but pilots were calling in to um uh, numerous television stations uh sending in emails and all kinds of stuff says no 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 we were calling out sick because of this vaccine mandate and they don't want to do it now governor greg abbott in the state of texas has passed a uh, executive order saying no company can mandate a vaccine um and it's interesting now because Southwest Airlines hubbed out of Dallas and they're saying, well, we're actually federal contractors. So that overrules the executive order in Texas. But this is about to be a very interesting fight. Um, you've got the pilots already saying that they don't want to come back to work if they're being forced to get vaccinated. There, there's this kind of, you know, sense that it's my body, my choice. And people have that right. And, and that should not be infringed on. But yet we've got the federal government, which, by the way, just to be clear, Joe Biden has not actually passed a requirement on a mandate at all. He made a press release about this, but there has been no executive order. There's been no bill passed. There's been no statute formed yet by the federal government mandating a vaccine. The actual executive order does supersede at this point because there is no federal order over this issue. But this is one of those things that's going to potentially hamper employees coming back to work and companies being able to get employees back, you know, back on staff. And it's interesting because they're saying, well, you know, what we'll do is we'll just if you don't want to get vaccinated, that's fine. We're going to fire you. OK, that's going to bring up a whole bunch of legal challenges down the road, which will be very interesting to watch over. Uh, you know, wrongful termination. But the second thing is, is that there's already a shortage of workers. If you're going to fire them, who are you going to get? You can't, <laughs> there's no workers to hire at this point. We have 2 million more job openings than we've got employees to fill them. So I think companies are about to get into a really tough spot between trying to go along with a non-mandate for some political reason versus just doing what's right and getting, getting companies back to work. Well, and we're seeing other states take the complete opposite stance. Like, look at New York. We're saying that if you're mm -hmm. going to work or you're going to work in a restaurant, a bar, a big venue, you're going to have to be vaccinated. Um, look at what New Jersey Nets star Kyrie Irving was always going to be able to play half of the games. He would not be able to play any home games. Mm -hmm. So the Nets said, hey, you're not going to be able to play or come to practice. You're going to be banned until you go get vaccinated. And so 
I think that's tough, especially when you talk about like Southwest Airlines or anybody in logistics, because they're in so many different places and operating. Yeah. So how can you have a one size fits all um, or everybody piecemeal together? I think it's very difficult. I know it is. And, the, you know, the other but look at what's happening in New York. Restaurants are, are having a terrible time right now because people won't go to restaurants because of requirements to be vaccinated. So, you know, they've done more. They've 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 actually done harm to their economic environment. By trying to facilitate this 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 you know proposal, without actually looking at the economic consequences, but this has been the whole problem with this this entire pandemic ever since the beginning. You know, we shut down the entire economy. It was like, okay, we're going to shut down the economy because this will help combat this this terrible disease that has a ninety nine point seven percent survival rate. Um, and, and it devastated the economy. And we had to throw $5 trillion at the economy to try to get it back up and running. And we're still dealing with those effects. Now we're having to deal with the inflation issue of it. We're having to deal with the economic issues of it. The economy slowing down rapidly. You've got rapidly rising inflation. You know, markets have done great because of all the liquidity. That's been awesome for the top 10% of people that actually own 90% of the stock market. But for everybody else, it's not really been that, that opportunistic for them. And it's been a real terrible burden on the bottom 50% of the population in particular. But we never really thought about the consequences of if we do this, what's going to be the consequences down the road? And we never really put any type of, of thought into that process before making this knee-jerk reaction. Oh, that's right. If you look at all the stimulus packages, that's why we've continued to need more. Oh, we need another one. We need another one. Where does it stop? Because we've hurt people so bad. And look at all the small businesses that are that are hurt and the employers yeah. and employees. It, it makes it a difficult situation. Absolutely. All right. That wraps up the show for today. Danny, thank you so much. Uh, be sure and get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on the link there for the upcoming Right Lane Retirement Workshop in Austin. It's this Saturday morning at the Dominion in Austin live event. They're going to feed you, too, so might as well just show up for the free breakfast. But uh, while you're there, everything you need to know about your retirement, investing, the markets, they cover everything for you. Answer all of your questions, whatever you need. Nobody's going to sell you any products. They're simply there to provide you information and to help you out. Show up this Saturday morning at the Dominion in Austin. Love to see you there. It'll be a lot of fun. Uh, you'll have a good time. We, we guarantee it. Danny's actually kind of humorous, particularly when he's on crutches. But... Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest blog posts, articles, and more out on the website now. And we'll see you back here tomorrow uh, for the Thursday edition of The Real Investment Show. It's a rich world. It's a rich world.